Hello and welcome to the Podcast Studies Podcast. I'm Dario Linares. In this episode, my co-host, Laurie Beckstead, undergoes a peer review in the form of a podcast. Laurie's written a draft of her chapter for a book that she and I are co-editing entitled Podcast Studies, Practice into Theory, Theory into Practice, which we hope will be published in the latter part of 2022. Laurie has invited two podcast studies scholars to read her draft and come on the podcast to discuss her work and give feedback. I'll let Laurie take it from here. Today, I am subjecting myself to a live peer review. Uh, So, (laughs) yeah, I'm a a little bit trepidatious and quite excited about this. Uh, But basically, here's the premise. So Dario and I are co-editing a book And we invited podcasters, podcast scholars who also podcast or are practicing podcasting in some way, whether it's researching podcasts, using it as a pedagogical tool uh, or, or podcasting itself, that they are practicing podcast and thinking about how their own practice informs podcast studies going forward. So what kinds of theories can we pull from our own experiences of podcasting? So that's the the premise of the book. And I have written a chapter for this book entitled Context is King, Podcast Packaging and Paratexts. Uh, And in it, I'm looking at all of the things that kind of surround the audio work itself. But but we'll get to that. Um, A copy of the draft chapter has been provided in our show notes. So if you're listening to this and you'd like to read the the, the draft chapter first uh, before you have a listen to how this peer review review goes, please feel free. There'll be a link in the in the show notes. Um, And peer reviewing today are. Hannah McGregor and Ian M. Cook. These two are true experts in their field. Hannah McGregor is an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And uh, that's where she mostly works on podcasting as a form of non-traditional scholarly communication. So, I mean, if you've ever attended any of the online talks about uh, podcasting and scholarship, Hannah McGregor will be there front and center. So she is definitely uh, an expert in this area. Um, you may have also heard her on uh, the Spoken Web podcast. She hosts that and she's the co-host of Which Please. And she is the co-director of the Amplify Podcast Network, which is a network of uh, scholarly podcasts, um, which Hannah might tell us a little bit more about. So welcome, Hannah. Hi, Lori. Hello. And also joining us is Ian M. Cook, who is the Director of Studies at Open Learning Initiative in Budapest and a researcher at Central European University. He is an anthropologist and multimodal scholar, and his research and practice focus on urban India, environmental justice, higher education, and, wait for it, podcasting. Uh, he is a podcaster, and he has written a book on scholarly podcasting, which, Ian, can you tell us a little bit more about that book and when that's due out? That book is a sort of ethnography of uh, scholars who podcast. I interviewed 101 podcasters. I asked them why they podcast, what they podcast, and how they podcast, and it, hopefully it comes out next year. And it's called Scholarly Podcasting, an Insurgent Curious Craft. Amazing. It's such a good and Hannah- name. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Amplify Podcast Network? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's a collaboration with Wilfrid Laurier University Press to develop a experimental method for peer-reviewing podcasts as a form of scholarship. So the idea is rather than using podcasts as uh, knowledge mobilization that comes after the fact um, or as, you know, idea fermentation that comes before the fact, we are thinking, can podcasts actually just be the research output? So we've got three podcasts sort of in production right now. And then, you know, a bunch of other stuff we're trying to figure out, like how to attach scholarly metadata to podcasts so they're discoverable in a library catalog. But we mm -hmm. can talk about metadata another time. Okay. Yeah, we should. I think we should devote a whole episode to that, in fact. It's uh, it's definitely a thing. Um, yeah, so you this, podcast, this podcast is meta enough, right? <laughs> it is. It, it is indeed. So you two are super well positioned to be peer reviewers, I think, for, for a chapter in this book. All right. So I don't know how nervous I should be and which one of you is going to be reviewer number two. We'll find out. Um, but our approach is, as we discussed before we started recording, that we would take the peer review template that Dario and I sent to peer reviewers of the draft chapters. So it has some questions for them to consider. So we're kind of going through um, that peer review here. So I think what we'll start with is having one of you give your summary of my chapter uh, to find out whether what I think I wrote is actually what I wrote or not. So um, let's go for it. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by just reading the like three sentence summary that I wrote. Upon further investigation, it's a two sentence summary that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> a qualitative, not quantitative um, researcher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 How dare you? I don't have a PhD in counting. Okay. What I wrote is... Beckstead capably argues that paratexts are both a helpful theoretical frame for talking about the way podcasts are produced, circulated, and received, and that proper and rigorous study of the nature of these paratexts and their impact on podcast production and reception is needed within the larger field of podcast studies. That was sentence one. You see now why there's only two. <laughs> <laughs> As such, she challenges the perception that podcasting is an audio-only medium, demonstrating that it relies on its visual and textual paratexts not only to enhance it, but to be a podcast in the first place. Hmm. Hmm. Ian, do you want to do you want to add to that? Did you have your own interpretation of? It was very very similar to what I wrote. I guess the only additional thing I had was that. Um, Beckstead does this, I'll do it in this only, you do this, uh, by, bringing in, by bringing in theory from outside the world of podcast studies or media studies, rather looking at from publishing and about the paratext related to books. And, uh, and that worked really well, I thought. Um, but we're, we're going to get onto the strengths and weaknesses later. But yeah, that's, I guess that's the, uh, the, the theoretical angle. Right. And I suppose just to give further context for listeners who may not have read the paper, um, what I've written about here is I've I've sort of taken a, a literary theory lens in a sense uh, that I looked at um, Pierre Jeannette's idea of paratext. Gerard Jeannette. Je thank you. This is a guy, I know this shit. This is, my PhD is in English literature. And Jeannette comes up all the time because he is the guy who came up with the idea of, of the paratext. And the paratext is... Um, all of the stuff that surrounds the actual text that is mediating or operating as a threshold for our actual interaction with texts. And that 
idea that like it's almost inconceivable that one could encounter a text not mediated in some way. And such is the case with podcasts as well. In fact, arguably such is the case with all media. And so right. the larger question of like, what are the kinds of thresholds we move through when we encounter different kinds of media is a really, really important, like material media studies question. Right. And I think one of the arguments I'm trying to make in this paper that that podcasts really don't exist without their paratexts. So without a website, a podcasting platform, a uh, cover art, uh, a description, an RSS feed. I mean, one could argue that the RSS feed is inherent to the medium, but each of the elements of an RSS feed, like a description and a title, are are paratexts. Um, and so, yeah, I, I boldly stated that podcasts do not exist without their paratext, and that more scholarship is needed looking at at such things. And in the article, or the chapter rather, um, I make that argument, and then I go on to kind of unpack a little bit uh, of two paratexts, two important significant paratexts of podcasts. One is cover art, uh, and the other is transcriptions or transcripts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I guess in a nutshell, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 Because you make the argument that podcasts are not podcasts without paratexts, I find the article as a whole is like intriguingly ontological. Like it is asking about the very question of how we define the existence of a podcast, which is, if nothing else, always a really fun activity <laughs> to be like, wait, so what is this? Right. <laughs> if I put an MP3 file on a USB key and hand it to you, is that a podcast? If a podcast falls in the woods and nobody, whatever. Yeah, no, but it's true. I mean, the <laughs> definition of podcasting is something we've worked on for a long time. And and I think, I think my underlying assumption here, and maybe I need to articulate this in the paper, is that a podcast is defined by it being an audio file with an RSS feed associated with it, that that for me is what constitutes a podcast. And I guess others, I'm sure, have probably argued differently. Um, but yeah, no, it's a good point. Maybe that is sliding into the into the manuscript strength discussion, which is maybe where you wanted to go in the discussion, Laurie, maybe. Because that was, just, just because I was just thinking about, because I was thinking exactly the most difficult thing to think about very often is, is a podcast relationship to its audience. And I guess what you're getting at with this ontological question about what is a podcast is is um, is it has to have an audience, right? And if no one's listening to it, then is it a podcast or is it just an audio that's being uploaded somewhere? And one of the most difficult things uh, that's forever been there in media studies, as far as I know, I'm not a media studies scholar particularly, is that um, looking at the audience of everything is quite hard, mm. right? Because mm -hmm. stuff gets put out, stuff gets put out there into the world, whether that's a podcast or whether that's a blog, whether that's a book or whatever, and people read it or listen to it or do whatever with it. And we don't really know very much about those people. They're hard to access for us as researchers very often. And so that's why I think this is for me what's really intriguing about the idea of paratexts when it comes to podcasts is because it's a different way of us to explore that relationship between the audience and the podcaster, which we haven't really looked at so much because it's quite difficult. And I mean, in a, in a, in a richer way than what 
a lot of audience survey data does. Okay, we know how many people listen to this podcast or that podcast or whatever, but what types of people and how they interact with the podcast, this is harder to get very often, especially for the smaller podcasts where there's a small sample of people to draw from. So for me, that's the real strength to to find a different way of looking at or of the audience of a podcast for this was this was for me like wow okay yeah now we can really start to think about what types of people um are listening and how they're they're coming there as well yeah yeah and these these conversations about audience tend to really be dominated by the industry itself and its perspective which is primarily about monetizing audience right so it's invested <laughs> right. in in listener habits insofar as they can be tracked in order to sell advertising and much less invested in actually taking that step back to think, you know, questions like how do people encounter media in the first place? Um, how does their experience of encounter with those media shape the perspective that they have entering into them? I mean, saying out loud things as simple as I will never listen to the Joe Rogan podcast because I look at the cover art and everything about it says you would not want to be alone in an alley with this man. Why? Yes, I put that right in the paper. It's right there. You said the quiet part out loud. But we actually do, as scholars of podcasts, need to say some of the quiet parts out loud. And that, Interesting. that is part of it, right? Is Is that there is like... Even just noting that we need some more visual culture critique happening in the world of podcasts because we talk about them as sound, but they are not only sound. Yeah. In fact, they kind of don't exist without those. And I, I refer to them almost as more uh, embodied digital assets, if that's not a paradox. The idea that a, a visual, a digital visual is somehow more um, concrete than digital audio, uh, that it pins it down in the internet world in a sense, the, the sort of visual culture of the internet um, gives gives life and access to the podcast itself. So yeah, and, and it's interesting how we haven't really started delving into uh, podca the, the paratext, the cover art, other things around podcasts. And I think I, I try to point out in the in the chapter that that podcasts in early days were thought of as paratexts themselves, right? Mm -hmm. They were thought of as a paratext to radio, really. It was just an alternate distribution medium for radio or a promotional tool to drive you back to a radio station, uh, for example. So um, I, I'm looking at the evolution of podcasts as paratexts to thinking about podcasts and their paratexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is both the case and also... Podcasts continue to be paratexts, but that's part mm -hmm. of the like yeah. nature of paratext itself is that a lot of the time texts are paratexts for other texts. Um, that's where we get into like peritexts and epitexts, right? Peritexts being the ones that are um, like physically attached to the object. So when you're engaging with a book, you're talking about uh, the cover art, the foreword, the blurbs, um, the, you know, all of that stuff. And then epitexts are the sort of larger world of circulating information and context about the text, like the fact of it having been discussed on like the Oprah show or, you know, where you encounter it or where you encounter reviews of it. And like for me as a podcast listener, podcasts often are the epitext through which I encounter other media that I actually will probably never consume. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right. Like, like someone's talking about a book or a movie or, or something like that in the podcast. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. that, yeah. 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 Um, absolutely. But something did just come to mind now. And that's if I said, Alexa, play me a podcast about murder. And then I listen to a podcast about murder. Have I interacted with any paratext to get to that podcast? Oh, interesting. That's a really great question, Ian, and not one that I have addressed in this paper. I've kind of argued that it's extremely rare for someone to encounter a podcast through audio only. And I think the only situation that I had thought of was if you're listening to one podcast and they do a cross-promotion within that podcast saying, hey, if you like this podcast, you'll probably also like this other one, and here's a clip from it, that that would be, I thought of that as the only way that mm-hmm. you would access like directly through the audio. So I mm-hmm. hadn't thought of Alexa. That's, that's um, I'm writing that down. Yeah. I would like to dig deeper into this, but I think there, there's other, it's really hard to organize this conversation around strengths and weaknesses, because that's I think okay. in general, it's just like topics yeah, and questions. Okay, so let's talk about the visual-centric or scopophilic nature of the internet versus accessibility, right? Because you make this argument Wait, did that you say scopophilic? Can you... What is that? <laughs> it's just the... <laughs> Thanks the, for asking that, Laurie. I also didn't know. I was, was going to look it up whilst Hannah was oh, talking. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just the fancy word for visual, for like fixated on the visual. Okay. Ooh, the that's a good word. I am going which. to incorporate that into my, into my vocabulary. Scopophilic. Yeah, we talk a lot about Western culture being scopophilic because uh-huh. it, prim- it, it, is. You know, it privileges the visual. Um, and one of the fascinating things about podcasting is that it's not a scopophilic piece of uh, Western culture. And at the same time, anybody who is blind or visually impaired will be using tools like Siri or Alexa or other assistive technologies to access audio files, which means, in fact, there are people accessing podcasts without ever looking at anything. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? And it gets into this kind of, like, this this logical knot because the argument about transcription, which is really an argument about how people with, you know, people who are deaf or, uh, you know, in other ways need assistive technologies for hearing, the transcript becomes a really vital paratext for entering into or engaging with the podcast that that in some cases does kind of bring the podcast into existence. But if we're mm-hmm. going to consider that, then we have to consider the flip side, which is that it is equally the case that people are engaging with podcasts and never, ever looking at anything. Um, and so that, for me, brings us back to that ontological question of, like, particularly the question of, is the visual more materially real than the sonic? And what are your thoughts on that? I think that the logics of the visual are embedded in the way that we happen to design digital technology Mm-hmm. such that it is often privileged. Yep. But when we actually come down to the question of the material reality of digital technology, there is no material difference between the visual and the audible. And I'm thinking in particular here of Matthew Kirschenbaum's book, Mechanisms, where he talks about um, forensic materiality versus 
I think, formal materiality. So forensic materiality is like, what are the actual material traces that exist somewhere? Because there are actual material traces that exist somewhere. Like every piece of digital technology has been physically inscribed somewhere. It might be on a server, on a server Mm -hmm. farm in another country, and you'll never see it or touch it, but it exists. Or on that USB key that I lost. uh, Yeah. Uh Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then it also has its formal reality. And the formal reality is a combination of the forensic materiality of the data itself and its interaction with your particular computer screen, the particular... Like like the user interface almost? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, And so there's no sort of one-to-one relationship between forensic and formal materiality in our interaction with digital technology. So forensically, the code that represents the visual file and the code, like the cover art and the code that represents the audio are equally material. And so the question is the interface, it's the formal reality. It's a formal materiality. Right. And the formal materiality through which we encounter podcasts shifts depending on whether we are using assistive technologies, you know, whether we are listening through an app or listening through Spotify or listening through Apple Podcasts or listening through like so there's there's lots of different things that mm-hmm. are framing that sort of formal materiality. Yeah. And you bring up assistive technologies and so the another instance that I hadn't considered was, you know, a screen reader, which is an oral medium basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, reading out the access points to a podcast for someone. Um so yeah, that's interesting. So I'm curious how much you figure I should incorporate those aspects into this chapter. I mean, there's always the the caveat that you could go down a lot of different rabbit holes and, and you know, how central do you f- think this is and, sh- and should be incorporated? I mean, I don't think that you need to go read uh, Matthew Kirschenbaum's Mechanisms and start talking about forensic materiality. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, but I do think that that sort of the boldest claim that a podcast doesn't exist. Well, one, I would I would I I don't think the idea that the visual is more concrete than the audio or real material more materially real. I don't think that holds when you apply pressure to it, but I think it is actually less important than the really exciting claim that you make that podcasts don't exist without visual and textual material because that is true whether users are listening or are engaging with that material or not even Mm -hmm. if in ian's example somebody says siri play me a podcast about about murder and they never look at the cover art that cover art still had to be attached to that podcast for it to get onto that platform that siri could access in the first place right yeah it wouldn't have made it there in the first place without without that I, I'm I'm minded now to think about then differences between audio, podcast audio, and um, and cover art because this is an example, and the differences 
And I'm going to think through this slowly because it's not quite clear in my head. So I hope it comes out clearly because there's two things going on. And it's to do with both of them are to do with movement and speed. So we know you can't freeze freeze frame audio, right? Audio exists in motion, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, which you can do with video. Uh, and you can do, obviously, a, a, a photograph is still. And a lot of the paratexts that you talk about are still mm-hmm. images, mm-hmm. whereas audio itself is something which is moving, right? Mm. And at the same time, the way we consume audio is relatively slow, mm-hmm. like compared, even be. though it has to be. Um, same way with a book, which is where you bring a lot of your theory from. Um, but the paratexts which surround a book are also relatively slow in terms of, you know, people go to, you know, book fairs and there's reviews and okay, it goes into the digital world a bit, but podcasts are very much more in that digital world than all the paratexts that go around it. So we have a, an item uh, that exists, a podcast, which is on the one hand has very fast moving digital speed, if you like paratexts, but a consumption mechanism, which is quite slow um, compared Mm. to everything around it. And I wonder whether this is something quite unique and how this might change drawing from literary theory when it comes to exploring paratext. Do we need do you need to also, as as you rework the article, think a little bit about digital speed and podcast speed being a form of digital media which is somehow slower than the paratext that go around it? Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's a really fascinating insight. And and one thing that springs to mind is I, I have a paragraph or two about how how resistant audio is to going viral and how difficult it is to share audio. And I think, you know, your mm-hmm. your argument underpins that, this idea that, you know, you can't just share a, a still of the video that you're sharing. You can't, um, you know, there's, it's very rare that audio goes viral. And when it does, it's usually been transcribed into a different medium like a, a YouTube video with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with still images, but there has to be mm-hmm. something still or or image based. Uh, but but this idea of yeah. digital speed, that's really, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, let's, hey, should we co-write a paper on that? <laughs> <laughs> we have a book to write, Lori. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Though maybe yeah. this, I mean, this could be a really interesting this could piece be in the of book. the book, right? Because yeah. it is that, that like, the durée of the podcast is part of the immersive quality of it. Um, God, tell me that you read too much French theory as a grad student without <laughs> telling you me you durée? read too much French theory as a grad student. <laughs> What's duration? Fuck. I was like, is there an English word for that? <laughs> Ugh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, but, I fucked up my recording, Anna, because I laughed so hard. Like, uh, I, totally pe- I, totally, I totally peaked. That's yeah. all right. <laughs> You've got to you've got to do what I do, which is learn how to always just instinctively look away when lean you lean back when you laugh. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so I should say full disclosure that the three of us are writing a book together on podcasting and scholarship and peer review and yeah. So that's what yeah. that's what we're talking about yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is something like I just keep thinking back to the actual advent of podcasting as a technology, which was like, cool, here's this thing, RSS feeds, which were designed in order to move around packets of text. And 
then people figured out how like this is like early text based Internet, right? Like sort of pre visual centric Internet um, when we're just like, you know, you're circulating blogs and articles and if there is an image, you are looking at the code of the image that has some little pointy brackets and a dot JPEG or a dot GIF in it. Like, you know, you're everything has to be translated into words because that is how, you know, coding works. Yeah. And then somebody figures out how to compress an audio file such that you can attach it, but... It's not the words. It's just attached to the words. So like right there from the very beginning is the sense that the audio file needs to be enclosed mm -hmm. in a set of texts that literally render it movable, visible, accessible. actual, yeah, mm -hmm. accessible. Yeah via this technology, right? And like that, at the end of the day, that's just the case with podcasts, that it is this other kind of media that has to be packaged in such a way that it can traverse the internet. Right. You got to put it in a little spacesuit <laughs> so that it can... <laughs> a little podcast spacesuit. ...survive without oxygen in this weird <laughs> digital environment. <laughs> That's Par cute. Paratex is a spacesuit. Yeah. Love it. Ian, you promised me to be reviewer number two. So nah, this has all been no. too kind so far. So so hit me with your best shot. Where, where are some of the, the weaknesses in, in what I've written here? I mean, I'll tell you one weakness that I identified in going back. And, you know, when you get writing and, and you're, so, mm -hmm. you're so under it, and then by the time you're finished writing, you're so sick of it, you don't want to look at it again. So you come back Correct. to it a few weeks later and you realize, oh, did I write that? And I noticed that towards the end of the paper, I'm trying to make an argument. And I, I said, cover art is blah, blah, blah. And I <laughs> that. So... I'm sure that's that's one glaring weakness is that I wrote blah 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 in there, so that's to be corrected. But <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> but please, no, I mean, well, I, I don't really, I I don't really want to do so much as like weaknesses, but maybe I have a bunch of questions, and some of which I think I've already asked. Um, but maybe I, yeah, maybe as a conclusion, like uh, the conclusion, well, if the conclusion is this is a useful avenue for people to continue looking into i was for, for me i think you can probably make a stronger conclusion than that um because yeah that's that because that conclusion that yeah this is an interesting topic and we should keep looking at it that's true hopefully of every single bit of research that's ever mm. published right because mm -hmm, every mm -hmm. bit of research if it's done well should be an invitation to further research on the topic right so i would not make that your your fine your closing pitch like yeah. uh, maybe in a sense that might reveal a I don't know, uh, what's the right word to it? A, uh, not wanting to claim that you're actually doing something more than what you're doing. Yes. So maybe a vulnerability or something. So like, I mean, um, 
I literally I, thought know, this. I, I, I was like, be uh, bolder, Lori. You are saying interesting things here. Stop saying yeah. like, anyway, other people should research it. No, you're researching it. Just tell us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's the better way to do it. But, you know, like Lori's a, a senior, a senior colleague, you know, so I was like scared hey, to say it. Hey, watch it. Watch it, buddy. Wow. What do you mean by a senior? <laughs> but... Um, yeah. Um, so that, for me, that's it. So I was like, really? That's the end? So I was a little bit disappointed when I got to the end, I should say, because, yeah, go for it. Go at like, like follow through those claims and then push it and push it somewhere else. Um, so that's you. that's yeah. one thing. And I think Hannah agrees. Right. And I just want to thank you for that insight, because honestly, I, I do think in retrospect, that was coming from a place of feeling very unsure about what the heck I was writing and whether yeah. this was actually a useful contribution. So, yeah. yeah, so I think I did kind of obfuscate at the end there. Like, it's like, okay, so I'm kind of pointing everyone else in the direction of something you could look at. Um, yeah, okay, so I will do that. I'll yep. change it and You're just doing own it. it. Be bold. Yep. Um, and maybe one way is to go back and explore this thing we talked about, about the ontology of podcasts. Like, maybe maybe that's somehow a contribution. Um, or maybe the contribution is to do with... Well, that was the thing that Hannah mentioned. The last thing mentioned, the thing that I mentioned, this difference between the speed of yeah. of podcast and the speed of digital media paratext. Maybe that's the contribution. And maybe that also would feed back into literary scholars who are looking at books, because now books very much live in that digital world as well. Right. Yes. And so maybe that's maybe there's something there that like, you know, the people who are looking more at that sort of world can learn from looking at podcast studies. Right. So maybe that's 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 one direction to go. Thank you. Um, I'd like smaller questions, maybe. Like, one of them is, why does everyone shit on Joe Rogan? You know, like, I feel like... No, but I really... Oh, I have I really, a very I, good answer to that. What What is that? Uh, he primarily uses his platform as a performatively apolitical space in which to um, offer voice and wide audience to people who are actively harmful. And he perpetuates... So he has, you know, Jordan Peterson on to talk Bernie about... Sanders. To talk about <laughs> horrible, I mean, he, you know, he had he had somebody on to talk about taking ivermectin and why that is a good protection from COVID. And so okay. it's he he is he he enacts this version of quote unquote just asking questions um, that is for me like deeply irresponsible in the platform of like. Um, I'm just a dude who's just like thinking about things out loud with absolutely zero willingness to take responsibility for the way that the ideas that you put out to millions and millions of listeners have like an actual material impact on the world. Like, I just think that's a shameful thing to do. Maybe, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I, I can't say I've listened to very, very much. I just listened to one or two episodes and because, you know, anyway, and um, and I listened to one when he interviewed like Amanda Knox, for example. I don't know if you know who, how she's famous she is, like to everybody. Like, and then it, I mean, anyway, and I, I, I didn't like I, I didn't get what all the hate was about. But also it's a little bit of a cliche, I think, for people to to, to hate him. So I was a bit wondering, like, uh, maybe, maybe like just in, in this in the sense the way you approach it it's a little bit like oh we almost think the same thing here guys and and so at least in that the way it was written like and then it but then it made oh, me think let's like get ready to fight i couldn't disagree more 
Okay, well, okay. So, then, Ian, can I ask maybe what you're reacting uh-huh. to? I mean, when I bring up, okay, so when I start the, the the section on cover art, I start by talking about my own anecdotal reactions to a couple of different cover art cover artworks, and one of them is Joe Rogan. Yeah. And I start off the whole section by saying, I hope the reader will kindly forgive me for bringing up Joe Rogan. So, you know, right? I, I guess what you're saying is I'm automatically assuming that people are going to roll their eyes at the... I think where I'm coming from, though, is rolling of the eyes for bringing up Joe Rogan simply more so because when you talk about podcasts, it's like everybody always says Joe Rogan and everybody always says serial. And I personally roll my eyes whenever anybody mentions any of those things. Either of those podcasts, yeah, yeah. So just maybe, because. Maybe, then why? Then why bring him up? Then why not go to somebody else? I don't know. Like, well, I guess because his cover artwork really was a visceral experience for me, and so I'm trying uh-huh. to unpack my own reflections on how do I feel about cover art. And so that one, you know, for me, like just the cover art, like you said, Hannah, if I saw this guy looking like this in a in an alleyway, I would turn and run. Um, Yeah, I thought that was a really well-handled section. It was one of my favorite sections because it gets at, like, you do embed it in a personal way, right? You say, I am a scholar of podcasting. It is my intellectual responsibility, in fact, to engage with this podcast, to know what it's about, to think about it. But when I look at this cover art, I feel afraid. And I think that that is is the kind of interpretation I actually wish we had more space for in terms of how we talk about things like visual culture because... Mm -hmm. I have that give it gives me the same effective response, right? That that it's not just that I look at that and go, ugh, this looks silly or ugh, this looks goofy. I look at that and I think about being yelled at by a man. And when I think about being yelled at by a man, I get viscerally frightened. Yeah. Same. And who wants to subject themselves to that if you can choose yeah. not to? But sure. but Ian still I mean I am not um I'm not sort of being defensive on this I, I mean I'm hearing what I'm hearing I think is that why assume that everyone has the same opinion of Joe Rogan and it's becoming cliched to kind of shit on it is that Yeah basically like as 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 in like uh the the bogeyman of the intellectual class you know mm. like uh, and <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's 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 where i sort of feel okay yeah again like you know and like um but yeah like i i'm not going to it's not joe rogan defensive joe rogan is not a hill i'm gonna die on it was rather that i just felt like oh, okay really you know like as in as in like um why no my computer's not about to restart no look that's that's what you get for trying to snooze you see the liberals the liberals who control our university like heard me me saying something vaguely positive about joe rogan i'm like headline white male academic defends joe rogan as quote not that bad thinks women are just being hysterical But anyway, so so the cover art. So I I looked at the cover art and I okay, so the Joe Rogan experience. So I first thing I thought of was actually the Jimi Hendrix experience. Is that what he's referencing? Maybe. And it's like a round face with like with like round writing 
behind it. So if you look at the Jimi Hendrix Experience album, it is like a round thing, only there's three of them in it, and with this psychedelic writing underneath, um, at least on the yellow album cover, cover version. And I guess it's different in different places. So maybe there's a reference there. That's what he's referencing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But then it got me thinking, actually, to move the conversation along slightly, it got me thinking about um, merchandise. Because when I was Googling the Joe Rogan experience, I saw a face mask. <laughs> so you can get a Joe Rogan experience yeah. face mask. And um, so maybe that's a paratext, though, which is missing from your lists of paratext um because you do mask. have a table is it no is, is merchandise is merchandise yeah because merchandise... i think i have it in there it's in the table i think it's it mentioned there? yeah oh, um that's my bad so i have uh material yeah i've i've uh listed it as material goods associated with the podcast for example branded gifts souvenirs t-shirts books etc oh so um, yeah yeah my so bad. but but yeah i mean i haven't addressed it in any significant way um just kind of listed it as as one possible thing to be considered a paratext okay yeah. my bad for, for for missing for missing that yeah i do i do wonder if that section would be strengthened um sort of what stood out to me in that cover art section was the second the the example the other one but it feels like you've reached for one really iconic podcast cover that is like actively shaping the culture of the visual branding of podcasts and then another just chosen at random and it feels like comparing apples and oranges in some ways oh um, i see yeah right that yeah it made... so the second one that i chose was for a podcast called 27 club which i haven't actually listened to i said i was going to based on the on the cover art yeah so i feel like you either need to go for like go for two like swipe through your app and find one that appeals to you and one that doesn't as a knee-jerk response and then dig into and evaluate your intuitive responses to those and think about those as visual culture and branding mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. look at the visual culture and branding of two different but equally iconic podcasts that have had a sort of similar level of of cultural impact but I think comparing one that's super famous and one that is that you just came across doesn't uh, doesn't right. make for as effective a comparison okay. or a, or a or a way of thinking through these these very right. questions about how like our you know the visual interfaces are are shaping our experiences. Yeah, got it. In an earlier draft, I had a a third and possibly a fourth cover, and then I it felt like I was going on too much about my own personal responses to them, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you. I'll take that. Yeah, but I, I have listened to the Twenty Seven Club, and it, and I, at least the one with Jimmy about Jimi Hendrix, and um, which maybe is why I got the Jimi Hendrix experience stuck yeah. in my head. But um, it's very intense, and it's a very mm. it's like a storytelling uh, podcast, like based in history, but told like it's not historical, and it's very like being shouted at. <laughs> no, it's not. But oh. it's like it's super <laughs> intense. It's super. It's really, I mean, amazingly sound designed to be a really like boom, boom, boom sort of uh, sort of podcast. Oh, um, okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's interesting that that's not what you maybe got from the cover. From the cover, mm -hmm. but I suppose you could get that from the cover. I mean, you're bringing up an interesting idea here that. You know, how much does the cover? I argued that the 27 Club cover seemed to really strongly represent what was in the podcast, in that it's got, you know, a picture of the Grim Reaper holding, a, um, what do you call that, an hourglass, and he's holding a guitar. And so you can kind of infer very clearly that this is a, and it's called 27 Club, so it's going to be about 
you know, rock stars who died at 27. But what you're connecting to now is this idea that is there something about the cover art that suggests it's going to be like a heavily produced frenetic, you know, hit you hard kind of podcast. So, yeah, um, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know that the scope of the chapter could dig into that. But again, like that just suggests more that this whole area of study is is really hasn't even begun and it yeah. would be exciting to do so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Any other um, suggestions for improvements here or, or areas that you felt the arguments were weak? Can I, can I offer one that kind of stood out yes, to me? Yes, please. Um, it's the introduction. I found the introduction a little perplexing. Okay. Because the rest of the article is thinking about the need to take seriously the many forms of additional media that surround podcasts but the introduction is about how much they suck and you hate them (laughs) that's true (laughs) and I was like it doesn't really prepare me as a reader to be like yes let's dive into visual culture when you've just spent two pages being like fuck this am I right guys (laughs) and you know what you know what like 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 because um, because I am uh, I'm not a scholar from this world, so I didn't actually know what paratexts were, like uh, without having to look it up. And when I read the introduction before I read anything else, and then I was like, okay, this is this is like this is going to be maybe is it going to be something about like labor and podcasts or like you know about uh, like yeah. and 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 because I didn't really properly reflect on the title, I didn't properly understand it. So it did it did take me the wrong way. But when I read it. In isolation, without reading the rest of the chapter, I did. I did write at the bottom. Nice. I recognise this because I did recognise it. Because for those people who haven't yet read the chapter, it basically starts off saying, "Okay, there's a great feeling. You finished a podcast, like you've recorded, or you finished recording. You've done all the editing. You're like, hey, I've got it. And then you're like, oh my god, now I've got to like upload it. I've got to write a show note. I've got to, um, you know, tweet about it. I've got to tag a bunch of people. I've got to create like some episode art, like blah 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 blah, blah. and um, yeah, and that. That is because, and you explain later, right? That's because you are a sound maker, and you're more more interested in in uh, in that sort in that medium as a way of, of expressing yourself than all the other stuff. But for other people, they love that stuff, right? They really love like like logo design, right? Or writing pithy like um, show notes, right? My so... favorite thing is designing goofy merch for my podcasts. I love it. <laughs> I love making. We got a tea public store for which please, and I'm just like new t-shirt every week. Nobody, nobody wants them. Nobody's asking for them. <laughs> well, Christmas is Christmas is coming up. So if anyone's listening to this podcast and they want uh, <laughs> t-shirts, <laughs> link in the show notes. If you if you want a t-shirt that says "Blast ended scroots are queer culture," you know where to go. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll get you to design one for me for uh, that says "Context is King" podcast packaging and paratext for those who are passionate about the paratext. <laughs> yeah, no, you yeah. you you two make a really good point because I I was trying to again that the concept of the book, the idea that we're reflecting on our own experiences, and I feel like my own experience as an independent podcaster has been I love doing the sound making, and then I just feel like, oh, God, there's this whole other slog. This um, For me, it, it feels like a barrier between the audio and the 
and mm-hmm. the audience, which is the internet and all of the paratexts that go. So, but I get it. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that I kind of has set this up as like a big complaint about that labor. And so maybe um, gestures towards this being a chapter about the labor. And, and I guess in a sense, I might have even started off the chapter thinking about it in those terms and then yeah. kind of got onto the paratext stuff and stuck <laughs> but, with it. Yeah, here's a, here's a, but here's an idea. Why not take that and put it at the beginning of your conclusion and say this is what i used to think guys like uh, this is what i used to think i used to think it's a slog but now i realize you know having done a bit of research into it that actually it's the you know <laughs> look at laurie's is... face you still hate it <laughs> i i yeah i haven't changed my feeling about it i, I mean it's still a slog it still work mm-hmm. i just think i think a little massaging to frame it as this like I love sound. I think of myself as a sound maker. I use that term for the following reason. Take that out of the footnote, put it right in the text, put it right at the beginning. Yep. Like open it with, I think of myself as a sound maker. This is why I talk about it that way. I love making sound. I love this process of working through it, EQing, DSing, producing these polished works of audio. But when I want my sound to become a podcast, I have to do a lot of other things to it. And whether or not I want to, even if I would love to work exclusively in the realm of sound, too fucking bad, I have to do so many other things to it. And the reason for that is that podcasts are not mm-hmm. only sound, and they never have been. Bam. Bold claim. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Bam. Okay, I'm going to take the transcript of this podcast and just verbatim, <laughs> including bam. the bam. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's an excellent suggestion. What else? What else can you suggest for me? <laughs> this is great. I'm having a great time here. <laughs> I was worried. Um, do, do you think we could talk about... Um, so one of the things we asked peer reviewers to look at when they were reviewing the draft chapters was whether how well it addresses the core concept of the book. And there's three aspects. So the questions were... Does the author address the core concept of the book, which is exploring the idea of podcasting as a practice... I mean, that's kind of, yes. I guess that's a check mark, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, and I'll just read the, other, the next two questions and we can discuss. So the second question is, how effectively does the author connect podcasting practices to a conceptual interpretation of the practice using specific ideas, theories, histories, et cetera? And the third question is, does the author reflect on what the practices they are discussing mean for podcast studies in general? I mean, I feel like check, 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 like that what you are doing is grounding a consideration of podcasting as a medium in the practical questions of how they are actually produced and circulated Mm -hmm. and that you are sort of suggesting things that podcast studies needs to be taking seriously that emerge out of your practical experience as a creator of podcasts. Okay, thanks. Ian? <laughs> I'm really hungry. I was thinking about what I'm going to have for my tea. Um, <laughs> nah, no, um, no, actually, I agree. Yeah, he does both of those things. Um, what it doesn't do, if I'm going to be them, I, I, I agree. I, I'd say then it's tick, tick, partial tick. Because <gasps> the final thing for podcast studies, it says like, and we talked about this already, yeah, it's really, really important for podcast studies. It could maybe say a little bit more why and maybe go a little bit back to 
um, maybe some of the now classic texts in the field um, or like or ideas, and then and then maybe just to say, okay, but now this if if we if it was this was looked at, then maybe we would have thought about this in a different way, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and so on. So maybe that's a little bit more, a little bit more specificity on what it means for podcast studies, apart from the fact it's new. And I know it's hard because you're actually writing about something which no one's written about before, which is really great because most of the time we write about stuff which lots of people have written out written about before, but pretend it's new. Um, but you're actually <laughs> writing about something which is genuinely I haven't read about before. So I guess um, I guess maybe a little bit more like that. I mean, it's a bit hard, isn't it? Because podcast studies is a very emergent field, mm-hmm. should we say? So it's not like um, you have some so much stuff to write. Um, against or or build on because it's it's really nascent so um but you're saying situate it more clearly in existing podcast studies like when you say go back to the classic texts like do you have if there or not even that but like what what are the you must know this because you're bringing out an edited volume on it there's certain themes which must be which must have which must be emerging maybe partly in your book and maybe actually you can relate it then to some of the themes which which are in the other chapters in your book Mm -hmm. and say you know for example because we already talked about audience so that's in my head say what would this mean for audience reception in podcast studies right Mm. and then looking at paratext would would allow us to explore this this and this or the next one would be what does it mean in terms of the commercialization of podcasting studies in terms of you know branding and brand management and how the and how you know celebrities now use podcasts as a form of brand extension and how this interacts with paratexts you know yes. so like just some of the f- yeah yes yeah, you agree yeah, with me yes. hannah yeah what's, i know what's it's happening fun. it's shocking it's shocking <laughs> but i think actually that those kinds of gestures to ongoing questions and conversations in podcast studies needs to fill in the sort of current rhetorical gestures which are other people should talk about this or you know, more research is needed on this. Like, I think it's just, it's an opportunity to say, like, if we shift this thinking about podcasts such that we recognize that they don't exist without a set of paratexts that are not purely audio, then that's going to shift our thinking about reception, our thinking about marketing, our thinking about accessibility, our thinking about, and like point to the fact that there are some, some nascent ongoing conversations in the field. I have there's this moment that I've highlighted where you said, I'll leave it to other scholars to defend or problematize that position. <laughs> and I was like, I know. bitch, you will not. You will do it in your paper. Uh, that was me, you know, at the end of two weeks of solid writing, going, I've had enough of this chapter. And I read I came back and reread that and laughed at myself too. So I, I'm glad you I'm glad you got a kick out of that. All right. So, I mean, I've gotten a ton out of discussing with you two. And and seriously, I'm going to I think I'm just going to plagiarize from the transcript of this to <laughs> for some parts of my chapter. Uh, it's um, called collaboration. And OK, thank you. Yes, that's a better word for it. Um, yeah. Is there is there anything else like in closing any overarching feedback that you haven't had a chance to address here? Oh, I have a note to talk about Marshall McLuhan, but we can do that off air. I'll give it to me now. Go for it. I think that maybe rather than that, the sort of opening argument that you make about uh, sort of visual versus audio media and maybe sort of similarly Ian's argument about fast versus slow media. McLuhan talks about hot versus cool media Mm -hmm. um, and hot media is stuff that 
occupies multiple senses simultaneously and cool media is stuff that is sort of primarily a single sense. Mm-hmm. And cool, he theorized that cool media requires us to um, more actively interact with the media and thus, you know, like often sort of we are more participatory in it. And it might be it might be a useful way to think about exactly what you're thinking about. I Thank really, you. I really, I need you to point, I need everybody to notice that for all that I yelled at Ian for defending Joe Rogan, his personal hero, um, <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have exclusively recommended that you cite white male media scholars. So yeah, clearly yeah. I'm a real feminist. Yeah. feminist so let me just quickly recommend uh, that you cite this no actually i'm gonna maybe i just i was googling around but i think i've got no idea the color of this person uh but they are based in canada which is a terrible thing and it's vincent duclos Mm -hmm. he's an anthropologist and he's at mcgill university and he has a short very short article called uh, inhabiting media and anthropology of life in digital speed and exactly and he talks about any and he definitely goes into the argument with uh, talking about McLuhan and getting oh wow and getting um, bombarded by um, too much media and how people respond to that, mm-hmm. uh, and it might link to this speed stuff. Now I think ab- now I think about it, I might have been his argument of speed might have been sitting somewhere in my head when I made it earlier. Only he probably makes it in a more sophisticated way. You so heard you, it you here had first, that. folks. Every point that Ian makes, he stole <laughs> from a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Colonial extraction in action. Hey, it's the hey. Canadian way. <laughs> we we exactly like we gave we gave up some of our colonies. You still live in one. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> this has been too much fun. I really was uh, nervous at the beginning, starting out, because you know it's a it's a vulnerable position to put oneself in to to yeah. to speak face to face about a work that you've put on paper but i can't imagine in a sense i can't imagine not doing this with a work that needs revision to be able to speak with others who are passionate about the same ideas and have s- such expertise as you do um is it's been a privilege to to hear your feedback on it so thank you both so much it was fun it was great Let's do this again next time you write a chapter. <laughs> I'll be calling on you. Don't you, don't think I won't. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in to the Podcast Studies podcast. Be sure to have a listen to our next episode, which we've released simultaneously with this one, in which I speak to Laurie, Ian and Hannah to get their thoughts and reflections on today's experiment with peer review podcasting. Do get in touch, of course, if you have any thoughts or feedback. You can contact us via our website at podpage.com forward slash podcast studies podcast or on Twitter at pod studies pod. 